2 Kings chapter 2. We didn't quite get out of chapter 2 together last time as we now come to the spot where we've watched a transition happen where Elijah the prophet we're told last time uh, was actually uh, taken up to heaven in a whirlwind miraculously God allowed this man Elijah the prophet after a very successful and powerful ministry to actually escape the death process and if you remember Elisha who for about 10 years was serving as his assistant kind of his protege in ministry was side by side with him learning the ways of the Lord and was exercising his ministry intended by God to be the successor uh, was longing to carry on and fulfill his ministry and witnessed uh, this very miracle as Elijah is taken up in the whirlwind and remember Elijah had said to him that if you see this that you'll experience that privilege and opportunity to carry on my ministry that double portion of the spirit that was upon Elijah would now be upon Elisha's life and it tells us that he then receiving the mantle that fell from Elijah touched the river Jordan there the first miracle of God in his ministry takes place it seems at least in his uh, independent ministry now as he's now serving the Lord and God miraculously parts the river that had just been parted earlier through his uh, really leader in his life Elijah he crosses across the river and now we're told verse 19 where we pick up where we left off that the men of the city now come to Elisha and the reason being that they now recognize uh, that he is now God's appointed leader in this next season they realize that uh, he has assumed the role that Elijah once had that the spirit rested upon his life now so they come to him with a dilemma that they're experiencing it says 19 here in chapter 2 the men of the city said to Elijah please notice the situation of this city and we believe most likely is a reference to the city of Jericho a very beautiful city where it's located geographically and just the conditions of the city where it's at so they say the situation of the city is pleasant as my Lord sees but the water is bad and the ground is barren so they bring to him this dilemma and they say, look, the situation here is pleasant. It's a good situation. It's a, a very opportunistic place to live. They say the city itself is wonderful, but uh, there's a problem that has arisen that we aren't able to resolve. And they say the city there, again, Jericho being near the area kind of around the Dead Sea, we're not sure exactly what happened, but uh, that water, of course, there, the content of the salt in that uh, particular location and body of water so high that nothing lives within it and is it possible some of that seeped over into some of the waters or the springs that were lit, uh, situated there in Jericho we're not certain whether something happened the water became brackish but the result of this water being polluted or bad in some way caused the ground to be barren in other words there was no life it was not producing it was not fruitful so they're facing this dilemma they bring the situation to Elijah in verse 20 it says he said to them bring me a new bowl and put salt in it so they brought it to him they obeyed his word and then verse 21 he went out to the source of the water and cast in the salt there and said thus says the Lord so he apparently receives a word from the Lord it's not necessarily the salt itself that's just a part of this process but apparently he had received a word from the Lord that God was going to heal this water that he was going to answer this need and resolve this problem so he says thus says the Lord the Lord says I have healed this water from it there shall be no more death or barrenness so interesting God was going to take what was dead and he was going to bring life to it God was going to take that which was barren and unfruitful and unproductive and it was now going to become productive and fruitful. It was going to give forth what it was not able to give up to this time. The favor and blessing of the Lord would be upon it. Verse 22 says, So the water remains healed to this day according to the word of Elisha which he spoke so again not necessarily the practice it's not necessarily the salt itself it tells us that the water was healed because it was a miracle of the lord 
Thus says the Lord, it was because the Lord determined, verse 21, I have healed this water. So because God wanted to bring about miraculous healing to this water that was polluted, it takes place. It is very interesting that it says he went to the source of the water. He goes to the source of the problem and God brings healing right from the source. And I look at this miracle of Elijah, very gracious, very compassionate to help the people. And as I look at it myself, honestly, I think to myself, how phenomenal that if the Lord is that interested in healing polluted waters, uh, if it mattered enough to the heart of the Lord that he wanted these polluted waters to be healed so that life and fruitfulness could come forth, if the Lord cared that much about those waters, then to me, I have to take in consideration he cares also about a lot of other things in our lives. I mean, if he cares that much about a stream or a river or a source of water, there were other sources of water. And again, this was a, a certainly something that did matter to them in that climate. It was something that was important to them. They needed water for survival. They needed water certainly in order to be able to, you know, adequately water their crops in an agrarian society and for these kind of things for cooking. But again, if the Lord cared that much about healing a polluted stream of water, how much does he also care about all the things that matter in our lives and to be able to have that encouragement where perhaps the waters of maybe some situation have become polluted maybe the waters of uh, the condition of our own heart you know the bible tells us in the book of proverbs to keep your heart with all diligence for out of it flow the issues of life the idea is it's a picture there of the heart being like a fountain and that our heart is like the fountain from which everything comes forth. Remember, Jesus said in John chapter 7 that out of your innermost being, referring to the inner part of us, our heart, he says, shall flow rivers of living water. So the Bible pictures, if you would, the, the innermost part of our life being like a fountain. And again, the, you know, like a fountain or a stream. And sometimes the fountain and the stream of, of my heart can kind of become polluted a little bit. Uh, and some things can begin to happen where the, the waters of my own heart can become a little polluted and distorted because of things that have had an effect or an impact. And how wonderful to know that the Lord desires to, at times, miraculously help and to heal. And maybe the waters of your life have become polluted because of something. Listen, God can heal. God can change hearts. God can miraculously work and he can get to, just like he did here, he went to the source and God can get to the source of any heart issue. And God can go right to the source and he can say, look, this source has been polluted and it's become stagnant and barren and it's become nothing but death and destruction and God can turn it around. And God can miraculously change and heal people's hearts. You know, sometimes the, the waters, I think, of maybe relationships and situations, you know, the waters can kind of get polluted and something happens. You know, well, here's this pleasant thing, but now the waters have become polluted. And now the waters of, of this relationship or marriage or you know, dynamic of a situation, they become all muddied and polluted. And, and it seems now there's no more fruit or life in something that once was wonderful and it's this sad thing that's been ruined. Look, the Lord is able to heal. The Lord is able to bring miraculous change and he wants to address the source of the problem and heal it. And I think to myself as I look at that, wow, Lord, thank you for recording that. One of many miracles that certainly Elijah did. And to make us remember that if the Lord would do that for natural water, that certainly there are other things he cares about in our lives and personal situations and that he is the same miracle working God of Elijah today as he was in that day. And that we can bring our situation to him and tell him, Lord, here's the situation. It's, it, Lord, it's something that was once pleasant, but it's gone bad. Lord, would you bring about your power and to trust that he has the power to heal in the way he does here. Well, verse 23, we now come to the second miracle of Elijah to a degree. You might say the second miracle. This one's a little bit more unique and interesting. If you read ahead, it says, then he went up from there to Bethel. So he moves on from Jericho, goes over to Bethel, where there was another one of these school of the prophets. But remember, Bethel, keep in mind, as you look at this, was also the location where there was the golden calves that had been set up by Jeroboam. So it became an area of real idolatry. And there was a lot of pagan worship going on in this area. So as he went up from there to Bethel, it says, as he was going up to the road, some youths came from the city and mocked him and said to him, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. 
So he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. He had quite a youth ministry. I mean, that's, that's pretty impactful there, isn't he? Cast out disrespect real quick there. He turned the youth right around, get their attention, just call down some bears on them. And then he went up from there to Mount Carmel, and there he returned to Samaria. Now, a couple things to keep in mind here. Verse 23, where it says some youths, uh, I think that the New King James on the other translations catch that a little bit better. This is not a reference to little children. In fact, the same Hebrew term that's used here, use, uh, is also used to refer to the young men that Rehoboam, back in 1 Kings, was talking to. And at that point, they were in the adult stages of their lives, young adult stage. Uh, so that term used there is probably a reference, the Hebrew term that's used, to those who would have been perhaps late teen young adults. So what you have here is just really just a group of young people, maybe you know late teenagers, young adults, who obviously are in an area where there's a lot of idolatrous worship and they're just very disrespectful to God and very disrespectful to the things of God. So they begin to mock. Uh, it says here, Elisha the prophet, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. Now, when they're saying go up, go up, more than likely what they're referring to, remember in the last chapter or earlier, yes, excuse me, earlier in this chapter, chapter two, it tells us there in chapter two, in verse 11, that Elijah, remember his predecessor, went up into heaven by a whirlwind. So probably when something like that happens, I imagine word passes around pretty quick. Hey, this incredible thing happened and the, you know, the supernatural realm you know, opened up in front of the eyes of these men and, and this you know, chariots of fire came in this whirlwind, this guy went up to heaven. So no doubt word of this has passed around that this was the way that Elijah departed. And so when they're saying go up, go up, probably what they're saying in their mocking, disrespectful tone, go up, you bald head, the idea is, is get out of here. Why don't you go up to heaven too? Just get out of here. It's people like you, Elijah and Elisha. You're always trying to cramp our style and hinder us from our idolatry and our immorality. So just go up. Why don't you go up like your master? Get out of here. Just leave. We don't want your God stuff and your you know, righteous standards and so forth. So again, this is just a, a clear manifestation of just utter mockery and disrespect uh, towards God as they're mocking him, it says here. And he, you know, very strongly turns around and looks upon them and is prompted by the Lord to pronounce a curse upon them in the name of the Lord. We're not told exactly what he said, uh, but it says as the result of that, God brought forth, again, the God of all creation, these two female bears that came out. And it says that they mauled them, 42 of the ewes. Now, if they only mauled 42 of them, there probably was a bigger crowd even than that. And again, it doesn't say that these bears killed them. It says they mauled them. So they, they taught them a little lesson, uh, you know, a few bumps and scratches and a little bit of painful experience. And certainly God was reminding them of the very self-destructive tendency within them to mock and disrespect God and the things of God. And you know what? Whether it be young people just in disrespectful mockery or whether it be any person, those who disrespect and dishonor the things of God are typically going to reap what they sow. Uh, God's not a pushover. Uh, God's not a little you know, wimpy person. And certainly God is patient and God is merciful. But look, God controls everything. And God's not going to allow man to resist him and to resist his plans and purposes. And if at times God needs to bring a little disciplinary action uh, to reprove people for their disrespect and their dishonor and remind them who's in charge uh, and that his plans and purposes are going to be what's going to come to pass. Uh, God's certainly not opposed to do that on occasion. So certainly I'm sure word passed around real quickly as these young men went running off with their scratches and bite marks and so forth on them. Chapter 3 opens by saying, Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. Now remember, we saw this last time. Jehoram is actually one of the uh, sons of Ahab. 
So when Ahab died, we saw last time that after Ahab died, that Ahaziah, his son, took over the throne first. He had a very short reign. He was a very wicked man like his father. However, in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 17, we're told that when Ahaziah died, according to the word of the Lord, that he had no sons to be the successor to his throne. So his brother, Jehoram, actually became the new king at that time. So this is now another one of the sons of Ahab. This is the second of two sons of Ahab who now takes over the throne. This still takes place during the time of Jehoshaphat, who had quite a longer reign in the southern kingdom of Judah. So Jehoram, the king of Israel in the north, now comes to the throne. Jehoshaphat still reigning in the southern kingdom. And it says of Jehoram, verse 2, that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother, that is, he wasn't as wicked as Ahab and Jezebel. For he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, and he did not depart from them. So take notice, Jehoram, certainly not as wicked as Ahab and Jezebel. That's good, uh, but really that's not sufficient. Uh, because though he may not have continued in the practice of Baal worship it says verse 3 nevertheless he persisted that is he carried on uh, the sins of Jeroboam who were idolatry and all forms of immorality and pagan worship and other ways and I think certainly what we're seeing here as we look at the life of Jehoram he was another ungodly wicked man who served as a king and he made some reforms but there was not real genuine repentance. Uh, he made some reforms in the sense that he didn't participate in Baal worship, but he didn't genuinely repent because he still persisted in other sins. And I think it becomes a good reminder to all of us that God is not just looking for us to make a few reforms in our life. God wants genuine repentance. And to just make a few reforms and clean up a few areas of our life and think it's okay to keep persisting in other wicked and sinful and evil practices doesn't really impress God. Uh, and sadly, sometimes we can almost kind of you know, make that mistake. And certainly I think a lot of the unbelieving world, those who don't genuinely know God, almost kind of think that God's on kind of like a, like a barter uh, scale. Well, I mean, I'll stop doing this and I'll stop doing that. I mean, I'll, I'll cut this area out and I won't do that, but I'm going to persist in these evil and sinful things. But God will be a little more pleased with me because I'm kind of cutting, like I'm taking a diet on sin. <laughs> I'm just kind of cutting back a little bit. I'm going to just cut back on, on a little bit of it. And, and somehow that is something we think we can kind of exchange for God. Listen, God wants repentance. God doesn't want us to just, well, I'll reform this area, but I'm going to keep living evil in this area. And this is what Jehoram was doing. And that's why the Bible tells us that he did evil still in the sight of the Lord. From God's perspective, it was still an evil way of living. Verse 4 says, Now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But it happened when Ahab had died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Now, this was very typical, and we've seen this before, that when there would be a transition in power, when Ahab died, Ahab was the one who had sort of put these uh, you know, kind of sanctions upon the king of Moab to control him, and he was basically making him pay uh, this tribute to him. There was sort of a control over that area. And very often, whenever there's a transition in power, that creates a window of opportunity where somebody thinks, hey, maybe this is our chance to rebel since a new king has come to power. He's not quite situated yet. So this point, once again, the king of Moab thinks, you know, I'm sick and tired of having to pay tribute to the king of Israel in the north. I did that with Ahab and Ahaziah. And again, that's quite a substantial amount of tribute there. 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. I mean, that's pretty heavy taxation, if you would. So he decides to rebel. He says, I'm tired of this. He seeks to rebel since Jehoram has just come to power. And Jehoram doesn't want to be perceived as someone weak someone who's vulnerable, someone who does not have the same power and control that his father did. So he's going to try and kibosh this as quickly as possible, but knows he can't do it on his own. And he doesn't depend upon the Lord. So because he doesn't depend upon the Lord, he doesn't have his trust in the Lord for battle. 
he begins to rely upon the arm of the flesh. So verse 6 says, King Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and he mustered all Israel and then he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah in the south, in the southern kingdom. And the king of Moab, he said, has rebelled against me. Will you go out with me to fight against Moab? So again, we know that there was a connection between these two families. There was a marital alliance. We talked about that in the time of, of Ahab. So there was a dynamic, even though this is the time of the divided kingdom, there was a level of alliance between these two because of a marriage. So he, taking really the initiative of his father, because if you remember in the days of Ahab, Ahab himself went to Jehoshaphat years prior during his reign and he played the same card. He went to Jehoshaphat and he said, hey, listen, I'm about to engage in battle. Why don't you join me? If we do this together, we can be successful and we'll accomplish this. And, and, and Jehoshaphat jumped full on board and went right in making a poor decision. He entered into this alliance with Ahab. So no doubt Jehoram thinks, hey, that worked for Pops. Uh, I need a little help here. Jehoshaphat kind of seems like somebody who's easily manipulated and can be drawn into these kind of things. So he goes to Jehoshaphat. He basically asks the same thing. Will you go out with me into battle to fight against Moab? And Jehoshaphat answered, just like he did in the days of Ahab, unfortunately, I will go up. I am as you are and my people as your people and my horses as your horses. Now, just like in the time when Ahab, the wicked king of Israel, asked Jehoshaphat to do this, Jehoshaphat makes the same mistake. Years later, he repeats the same process. And when he says there, I am as you are and my people as your people, that's a horrible statement. Jehoshaphat was a good and a godly king. He followed the Lord God of Israel. Ahab and his sons did not. They were nothing like each other. One was an idol worshiper and a Baal worshiper. The other was a worshiper and a follower of Yahweh God. And here he just makes this statement, Oh, I am as you are and my people is your people, so let's just partner together and do this. And perhaps, as we see this here, we again see this revelation Jehoshaphat just seemed to have, because the Bible shows it multiple times, this weakness. Was he a good man? Yes. Was he a godly man? Absolutely. He had some great attributes. But even good men and godly men still have their areas of weakness. And for Jehoshaphat, it seems that his area of weakness was getting involved in things that he had no part being involved in. And sometimes that can be a real weakness in people's lives where they just have this tendency to not be able to say no or to be a little too inclined to just jump into things too quickly and just say yes to this and yes to that rather than praying and asking the Lord, would you have me to get involved in this? Do you want me to participate in this situation? Do you want me to get involved in this relationship? Do you want me to spend my time doing this? And here Jehoshaphat just seemed to have this real weakness in his life where he rarely said no to much of anything and so often he was getting himself involved in things that he just had no business being a part of. And once again, he makes concessions and compromises and he enters into this battle. And, and here's what's interesting. Perhaps, perhaps if Jehoshaphat would have declined and he would have said, hey, no, I don't want to get involved in that and I'm going to be unequally yoked if I do that. And if he would have declined, Maybe not only would it have kept him out of hot water and putting himself at risk as he has at other times before, but it also may have been the very thing that would have driven uh, Jehoram to a place of desperation where he actually might have cried out to God for help. Because Jehoram, instead of looking to the Lord in a time of desperation to help, Instead, he turns to the arm of flesh and Jehoshaphat says yes, so he thinks, okay, my problem is solved. And I think this is a good reminder for us as well because perhaps if Jehoshaphat would have declined and said no, I can't help or I'm not going to get involved, that may just have forced Jehoram to reach out to the Lord in humble desperation, which would have been a lot better for him too because he needed to learn how to look to God. 
And sometimes we have to be careful because sometimes even when we may have good intention, sometimes we get involved in a situation or perhaps we offer to help or participate in something because we don't seek the Lord about it. And sometimes I wonder if perhaps I don't, you don't actually get in the way of somebody else relying on the Lord. And we step in and say, yeah, I'll help you out. And God is saying, uh, I would have liked to help out there. But now that you're helping, they're not going to ask me to help. Now that you're getting involved, they're not going to come to a place of humble desperation where they're going to cry out to me for intervention because basically you just intervened with your savior complex. And you just stepped in and helped in that situation and now they're not going to look to me for help. So again, this was sort of a weakness in Jehoshaphat's life, entering into things impulsively. He would say yes and then he would pray afterwards. We don't want to do that. We want to pray first and then decide if we should say yes or no. So he just consents, sure, happy to go to battle with you. So verse 8, then he said, which way shall we go up? So how shall we proceed in the battle? And he answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. Now, two things are being said there. One, that they're also going to enter into an alliance with Edom. So now it'll be three kings, the king of Judah, the king of Israel in the north, and the king of Edom, which will now go against and attack Moab for this rebellion. But they're also making reference there to the way they would approach coming up and attacking Moab, which is rather than come around the northern part of the Dead Sea and come at Moab from the north, which would be the more typical way of passage and travel, but the northern part of Moab usually would be a lot more fortified in battle and was much easier to defend. Instead, they choose to come around the wilderness part of Edom to go around the southern part of the Dead Sea and then come up the other side to kind of come against the southern border of Moab because they, they realize that way will probably be a lot less defended. They won't expect an attack from that direction. Sounded good, looked good on paper, but again, the problem is they didn't take certain things into consideration and they ignore asking God for guidance. There's no asking the Lord, if you want us to fight this battle, how would you approach the situation? Instead, they just use their own logic they use their own reasoning. And do we not make this mistake more than once in our life where we just look at the situation and we kind of spread out our own little battle map and we say, okay, that way would probably, but let's attack this way. Let's, let's take this approach. Let's go this direction and here's how we're going to handle this. And they think it through logically and practically. And as the result, they say, here's what we'll do. Let's go down. We'll pick up the king of Edom, get him on our team too. We'll circle around the wilderness through the wilderness desert area of Edom. Nobody typically traveled that way. They think, hey, they're never going to expect an attack by coming up through a desert wilderness area. We'll catch them off guard. So this is their approach. But notice, because God's left out, typically problems arise. Verse 9, so the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and with the king of Edom, all three kings, and they marched on that roundabout route for seven days and there was no water for the army for the animals as well that followed them so it takes seven days that's quite a journey to not only be outside marching with armies but seven days in a roundabout wilderness desert like climate like seven days going through a desert area with a large army and now notice there starts to be a problem it says there was no water for the army nor for all of the animals and the provision that they had with them so as a result again as i said of not consulting god making some poor judgments now what happens they start to struggle there's no water People are struggling of thirst. The soldiers are being weakened. The animals are struggling to carry on and they're beginning to face real problems. This is a major issue. No water for the soldiers. You don't want weakened, parched, dehydrated soldiers and animals when you're ready to enter into a war. That's not a real good idea. So they find themselves facing a real dilemma and some major problems. But again, why? Because they didn't consult God. Because they didn't seek the Lord for direction. They just launched into it the best way they saw fit to do it. And as a result, now they're starting to struggle. And so often, a lot of times, the Lord will let this process sometimes play out in our lives. 
if we ignore the Lord or we don't consult the Lord or we just venture into something in the flesh and we're not really being led of the Lord, sometimes the Lord will just kind of let us take our journey a little bit and it'll let us journey through the wilderness a little bit and get to the place where we start struggling and realizing we got ourselves in a real predicament. And it's in those moments that sometimes the Lord kind of gets our attention a little bit. When you don't have water, that gets your attention real quick when you don't have water. So they realize this isn't good. Look what happens, verse 11. Jehoshaphat, or excuse me, verse 10, the king of Israel says, alas, here's, the, here's how he evaluates the no water problem, alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. So look at it. Jehoram has this idea. He ignores God. He doesn't inquire of God. He just puts together his plan, launches into it. And then what does he do there in verse 10? He says, the Lord's called us three kings together to kill us out here in the wilderness. He basically blames God. <laughs> they're in the middle of the wilderness. They're struggling. They have no water. And he says, this is the Lord's fault. The Lord brought us out here to kill us. How could the Lord let this happen to us? And again, I look at this and I think, boy, how fitting of an illustration is that of humanity sometimes? You know, we ignore God. We don't let God be involved. And then we blame the Lord. Is that not such a fitting illustration of what often happens? You know, who has not talked to someone before? You know, particularly talk to someone who's, you know, maybe an unbeliever, a friend, or a job, you know, in your a person in your job or your relative, and, and they're just making all kinds of poor decisions. They ignore God. They want nothing to do with God. They don't want to follow the Lord. They don't want to include the Lord in their life. And then they begin to face some of the struggles and challenges, the natural consequences of what they did or where they've gone. And they start to face some real struggles. And they, how could God let this happen? I can't believe the Lord would do this to me. What kind of God would do something? Wait a minute. <laughs> you ignored the Lord. You didn't inquire of the Lord. Now you're blaming him for where you went or what you're dealing with or what you're facing. And honestly, we, even as his children, sometimes have to be careful because we can find this tendency within ourselves. But look, we need to be willing to recognize if we're going to make decisions independent of God, we don't have any right to blame God for what happens as the result of the, just the natural consequences of our decisions. So he says, well, I can't believe this. The Lord's brought us out here to deliver us into the hand of Moab Verse 11, Jehoshaphat, who again is a God-fearing man, he has a little bit wiser evaluation of this dilemma they're in. He realizes, mm, here's the reality. We made some bad choices. We better cry out to the Lord. He says, Jehoshaphat said, is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? In other words, Jehoshaphat realizes, you know, I, I probably made another poor judgment here. Just like with your father Ahab, I did it again. I got myself into a situation. I'm participating in a battle I probably shouldn't have been in. But, but notice the wis this is the wisdom of a follower of the Lord that even when you make poor choices and you start to struggle, you just humble yourself and you inquire of the Lord. Lord, I'm out here in the desert. I got no water. Yeah, I'm going to die if you don't help me. Like, Lord, I, we, and you, you inquire of the Lord. You humble yourself. You eat the humble pie and you admit and acknowledge, Lord, this isn't your fault. This is my fault. I ventured out here. I got myself into the situation. But Lord, what do I do? What, what do I do now, Lord? I'm, I'm engaged in this. So he says, isn't there a prophet who we can inquire of God? He wants to pray and seek the Lord. So one of the servants, verse 11, answered the king of Israel and, and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. In other words, hey, there is a prophet of God with us. We can inquire of him. He can give to us the word from the Lord that we need for direction. I love again how the Holy Spirit gives us this little insertion about Elisha, the prophet's life. It says he was a man who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And again, that was for 10 years he served together with him. I mean, you can't think of anything probably of a more humble, menial task than pouring water on somebody's hands so they can wash their hands off. I mean, that's, it's a picture of just a menial, humble practical task of a servant but again uh, this to me reminds me here is elisha the prophet this powerful godly man being used by god in amazing ways but yet what's he known for 
He's a humble servant. He was somebody who poured water on the hands of his master Elijah for 10 years while he was just learning and serving. But he was known to just be somebody who did humble, simple tasks, pouring water on the hands of Elijah so that he could clean up maybe before a meal and things of that nature. So Jehoshaphat, verse 12, said, The word of the Lord is with him. This is who we need. He can give us a word from God. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? In other words, what are you doing coming and seeking me for now, he says. Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. So he kind of rebukes him. You know, you always worship these other, you know, uh, gods and they have their own prophets. Why are you coming to me now? He kind of rebukes him for the hypocrisy of his nature. But the king of Israel said to him, no, no, for the Lord, Yahweh, he's called these three kings together to deliver us to the hand of Moab. And Elisha firmly responded back to him as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand. Now, take notice. They're in the middle of a desert wilderness area. And yet Elisha, so conscious of the presence of the Lord, he says, even though I'm out here in the middle of a desert wilderness, I'm standing in the presence of the Lord. He says, the Lord God of Israel who lives before whom I stand. I don't stand in your presence. And that's why he's being so direct with him. He's not afraid to be honest with him. He's not looking to impress him just because he said, look, look, I stand before the presence of the living God. And he says, the living God wants me to tell you, he says, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, remember he was the godly king of Judah, I would not even look at you nor see you. He says, I wouldn't even give you the time of day if it wasn't for this righteous godly man who thankfully is standing here next to you at this moment, or I wouldn't even bother talking to you, he says. Again, it was basically the presence of the godly man Jehoshaphat that actually granted access and opportunity for this sinful man Jehoram to actually hear and have something of communication between him and God. And I look at that picture there and I think, man, what a beautiful image in some ways Jehoshaphat becomes of exactly what Jesus is for you and I. He says, the only reason in your sinful, wicked condition, I'll regard you, look at you, even give you access or opportunity to communicate with me is because of this righteous, godly man that's right here in the presence of us as a mediator. And look, the truth be told for all of us, uh, our condition before God is wicked and sinful and evil. And it's only because of the presence of Jesus as a mediator that God gives us access by grace into this position that we have. And it's because of the righteousness of Jesus that God actually regards us and he's willing to communicate to us and that we can come confidently, Hebrews 4 says, to his throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help at time of need. Verse 15, he says, now bring me a musician. Now that's an interesting request, isn't it? They come to ask him for guidance. Give us counsel. What do we do? And he says, um... Bring me a musician. <laughs> I mean, just bring me somebody to come play me some music. And it happened, verse 15, when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him and he said, thus says the Lord. So take notice. Whatever reason, Elisha feels the desire, the prompting for them to go and get a musician to come and play some music for him. And I don't think he came and played a little jazz concert or did a little blues music for him. I have to believe this is a musician who came probably with a harp or one of the instruments and probably played some of the worship and psalm type music that they used in their worship practices as the people of God and in the temple precincts. And so I envision here someone coming and just beginning to play soothing, worshipful type music and kind of allows Elisha to maybe just take a few minutes. Again, he's kind of frustrated with Jehoram in this moment here coming to him. And he, I kind of got to get my senses about me here. And he just takes a few minutes according to his own preference and he just listens to this musician play and as the musician begins to play this music and he's kind of communing together with this it's in that moment as the musician plays that music it says the hand of the Lord comes upon him and then the word of the Lord is given to him and I look at that picture there and I think what a beautiful thing the reminder to us no doubt as the Bible puts this in here for us to see how music is indeed a very powerful medium 
that God uses in our lives. Uh, again, think of it. Of all the ways, you know, and there are many different ways certainly we can worship the Lord. Music is not one of the only ones, but one of the predominant ways we do see in the Bible or even commanded throughout the Psalms and other, is to use music and instruments and singing as an expression of our worship and our devotion to God. Again, and I don't think it's because we just sound so awesome or God you know, just kind of really likes what we're able to do. I mean, he's got the angelic host around him. <laughs> but for whatever reason, God has chosen to use music and singing and these kind of things as a medium for us to be able to express worship and praise and adoration towards him, to just have fellowship with him. And, and I think God understands the way he's wired us and created us, that there's something about music that it does stir the heart and the mind and can stir the heart and mind very powerfully in a right direction when it's godly, worshipful type music that's used. And in this scene here, you take notice that as the musician begins to play and Elijah begins to engage in what he's doing, he really becomes very sensitive and receptive to God. And he actually ends up being more yielded to God's leading and hearing the voice of God to where he now gives a prophetic word to speak on God's behalf. And look, for all of us, let us never forget Music and the music that God asks us to utilize in worship is something that is a very helpful thing for us in our worship experience with God. I don't know about you, but I find that when I engage in the midst of worshipful music towards the Lord, it prepares me, it prepares you to be more sensitive spiritually. We become more receptive to the things of God. We become more yielded and receptive to the Word of God, to being able to hear from God and to have an experience with what God wants for us. So the hand of the Lord comes upon him during this musical moment, and he then says, this is the word of the Lord, make this valley, verse 16, full of ditches. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. In other words, there would not be an evident storm in front of them. Yet, God says, the valley shall be filled with water, so that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hands. So God's promising they're going to have victory in the battle. And you shall attack every fortified city, every choice city. You shall cut down every good tree, stop up every spring of water, and ruin every good piece of land with stones. So this word comes from the Lord. Notice this promise that God is going to not only spare them, sustain them so that they don't die of dehydration out there but also that they were actually going to receive victory in this battle that they've now gone out into where they find themselves kind of in a vulnerable spot because of the current condition but what the lord asked them to do in connection to this promise really is something that's quite contradictory to logical thinking i mean again look with me there in verse 16 here's the word of the lord they are struggling with no water they're in a wilderness desert climate for seven days in a hot desert area with no water. They're dehydrated. They're weakened. And the word of the Lord comes to them saying, look, I want you to go and I want you to dig, he says, a bunch of ditches. Now, can you imagine going to a bunch of soldiers who are tired and hot and sweaty and dehydrated and saying, uh, thus says the Lord, start digging ditches digging ditches yes god wants us to start digging ditches and god says if we dig ditches he'll bring water <laughs> i mean and this i assure you was no doubt likely the last thing hot weak weary dehydrated people feel like doing i assure you everything in their being contradicted what the lord was asking them to do but sometimes, listen, sometimes the Lord may ask us to do something and everything in our being may be contradicting what the Lord's asking us to do. But will we obey the Lord in faith? Sometimes the Lord may say, I know you don't feel like doing this. I know, there's, I know nothing in your reason would say there's a purpose for doing that, but I'm asking you to do it. And if you do what I'm asking you to do, then I'll perform what I plan to perform. And now they find themselves in this spot. What are they going to do? They have to invest work. They need to dig ditches. They need to do this completely in faith. 
as an act of faith and obedience to what God is telling them, they have to dig these ditches. And the promise is, is that though this contradicts everything in your thinking and what your feelings are saying, if you do this, I promise to work. I'll provide water. I'll fill the water. Notice it wouldn't even be through a natural means. It says that the ditches would be filled with water, but it wouldn't be, it says, through wind or a storm. It wasn't just going to be through rain. God was going to miraculously, it was going to be a total act of God. He was going to provide water for them in the midst of that desert climate there. And the Lord promises that his work to supply what's needed would come to pass if they, in faith, prepared for God to do what God wanted to do. But they had to choose in faith to believe that God would do it to obey in faith and begin to just do what God asked him to do and trust that God would do what he said he would. And God says, if you do that and you prepare in advance, I'll provide, but you need to start preparing in faith. You need to act in faith and prepare in faith. And look, sometimes we need to do our part to prepare for God to do what God wants to do. Sometimes the Lord may tell us in advance in some way, you start digging. You start preparing, you start doing what I'm asking you to do and you do the preparation and then I will powerfully perform what I intend to do in time. But you start your process in faith first and start accomplishing what I've asked you to do. And the wonderful thing is, is that when we make those preparations in faith, trusting his word, the Lord always performs his promise. Notice verse 18, he says to them, this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. Again, complicated to them, there's no way they're going to find water in the middle of a desert, but that's not complicated for the Lord because the Bible says there's nothing too hard for the Lord. It was a simple matter in the sight of the Lord because nothing's too hard for him. Hey, tonight, let me ask you, what is it in your life? They go, that's just, that's, that's, I don't know. It's just, did you understand? This is too complicated. There's just no way. This is too complicated. <laughs> there's no way this, and the Lord says, Right? There's no way for you, but this is simple to me. What looks impossible to you, what seems impossible to you, is simple to an all-powerful, all-knowing, limitless God who created the heavens and the earth and who has the power to do anything. So he tells them to begin to dig ditches, that he's going to bring the victory and bring water to sustain them. Verse 20, now it happened in the morning when the grain offering was offered that suddenly... Water came by the way of Edom and the land was filled with water. Now, again, perhaps it rained in the mountain areas far off and the wadis, which are kind of the dry river beds, began to receive the flooding water coming down further south to where they were. We don't know exactly how it happened, but the water came from somewhere they did not see. It was evidently from the Lord. But again, they did their part. God faithfully came through. It happened as God said, the water came, the land was filled, they were sustained, they could drink. And when all the Moabites heard the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to bear arms and older were gathered and they stood at the border. And watch what happens here. God had multiple purposes. Then those who rose up early in the morning and the sun was shining on the water and the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely struck swords and have killed one another. Thou, therefore, Moab to the spoil. So what happens is God not only uses that water to sustain and preserve them, but he also uses it to deceive and to trick their enemies, to protect them. They look and they see all the water filled in all these ditches that they dug, and they see the reflection of the sun off of the water, and it looks like just pools of blood from a distance. And the Moabites think, hey... <laughs> That's blood. I mean, these were three kings. Israel in the north and Judah in the south, they've been divided. And they're also partnering with someone else. Something happened. There was a power struggle between those three kings and they all turned their swords on each other and they had a slaughter last night. Look at the blood all over the field. Let's just rush in there and go take all the spoil. Let's go steal and rob everything from a bunch of dead corpses that are laying all around. So now they're going to come unprepared, vulnerable to the people of the Lord so that God can render a easy victory. So they go rushing in unprepared. And when they came to the camp, verse 24 of Israel, Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites. So they fled before them and entered their land, killing the Moabites. And they destroyed the cities. Each man threw a stone on every good piece of land and filled it. 
And they stopped up all the springs of water and cut down all the good trees, but they left the stones of Kir Hareseth intact. However, the slingers surrounded it and attacked it. So again, they just followed through obediently with the command of God as he asked them to, just kind of set them back a number of years as they stopped up their springs and threw large boulders in their fields and so forth. It was a part of a tactical battle plan God gave to them. Verse 26, and when the king of Moab saw the battle was too fierce for him, that he was losing and it was hopeless, though he had started this rebellion, he then took with him 700 men and drew swords. Again, he doesn't want to give up in his rebellion to break through to the king of Edom. So he says, maybe I can go through Edom's ranks. They'll be easier to defeat. But again, they could not. They lost again. Verse 27, sadly read, then he took his eldest son, who would have reigned in his place, and he offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was a great indignation against Israel, so they departed from him and returned to their own land. So notice, so desperate did the king of Moab become in his desire to rebel, in his desire to have his own way, so desperate does this wicked king of Moab become to have his own way that he went so far, the Bible says here, is to actually sacrifice his oldest son who would have reigned in his place and he actually puts to death and destroys his own child in the process, no doubt thinking this would appease or gain the favor of his god Chemosh, that if he were to offer his son that somehow he would receive victory. And it seems that the three kings of Israel, Judah, and Edom, as they see this child sacrifice on the wall, that they are so disgusted and disturbed by this senseless act of child sacrifice that they just retreat now and they move on. But again, the Bible puts this scene before us here and I think to myself, how sad, truly, how sad to see how far people will go just to have their own way. Literally, this man went so far as to actually sacrifice and destroy one of his own children's lives. But I tell you something, I've watched people all around this country want their way so bad they've destroyed their own children's lives in many different ways. And it's very sad. But I'll tell you something. You know what the antidote to all that is? The antidote to all that is this, is that God in a healthy and wholesome way has sacrificed his own son and didn't spare his own son so that we could be forgiven and our hearts could be changed and that we could experience the power and the love of the Lord despite the many shortcomings in our lives. Let's stand. Let's pray together.